This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Welcome back. <clears throat> I mean, some of you didn't go anywhere, but I'm glad you're here. Don't you love Audioverse? Because Audioverse, you could like hear Clinton talking about Hebrews, even if you're not in his room. And that's what I want to do, is hear Clinton talk about Hebrews. So that's what I'm going to have to do after, because I've come to know him in the Tosk meetings. All right, those of you who are in the back, there are seats up here, kind of middle-like. And um, it's like that in churches generally, right? You can always find room near the front if you have the courage to go. I had a stimulating conversation during the break, but boy, the breaks are short when you end late, and uh, that's my fault. All right, as you're able and willing, let's kneel for prayer, and we'll begin. Our Father in heaven, I ask that as we talk about the everlasting gospel, and about the experience of 1888, that you would make a difference for us as a people. We ask that you would teach us about Jesus. In the name of Jesus, amen. When God has a message for his people, his standard method of operation is to choose someone to deliver it. Typically, when God wants to teach me something or you something, it's not always so, but often so, he chooses someone to teach us. You can see this in the conversion of the Apostle Paul. When he was converted... God didn't send him first right away to Arabia before anything else. First he had to go to a man, and the man was to instruct him in the way of the Lord. Apollos was a really great student of the Bible, but he had to sit down at the feet of, I just forgot the couple that was teaching him. Yeah, such pretty names, aren't they? Aquila and Priscilla. And they instructed him in the way of the Lord. Often, God teaches me something for you, and he teaches you something for me. That is, he really doesn't want us to be a bunch of atoms. And this is why, as we approach the end of time, that we ought to meet together more often. Have you read that in Hebrews 10? That we ought not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. In fact, so much more than so, as we see the day approaching, we ought to be meeting together. Or or squishing together, for example, we can be doing right here. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 8. Let's just finish off the last hour, because I see a lot of people here that were here during the last hour. Hebrews chapter 8 is the New Testament passage that talks about all those Old Testament verses we looked at in the last lecture. 
Hebrews chapter 8, looking at verse 6. But now has Jesus obtained a more excellent ministry. I know someone's going to have a question about this. You wonder what version I'm reading. It's the King James Version, and I just change it as I go. All right? Um, so that, if it doesn't read what yours says, that's the version I have as I'm going. All right? But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. When you read that, when God makes a promise, can he lie? In terms of reliability, you, you can't compare one of God's promises to another one. Does that make any sense to you what I just said? That God is faithful. He cannot lie. But when we read about that old covenant in Deuteronomy 5, not every promise in Deuteronomy 5 was made by God. Who else made a promise there? That was the people, right? They said, all that you said, we will do. And those kind of promises are illustrated by Ellen as ropes of, like they could be really sincere, but they don't work out. It could be for you, you really want to live a better life. You really try to live a better life. You try to, to obey, and that could be when you're young, obey mom and dad, and when you get older, obey the Bible, and somewhere the transition is really awkward, right? But you learn to obey, but you can't manage it. So the new covenant is based on better promises. Verse 7, For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place should have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them. With who? <clears throat> them can't be the covenants, and it can't be God. It must be the people. Does that make any sense to you what I said? For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Now, do you remember when we read that verse? Did God find fault with them in that verse? He did. That was Jeremiah 31. And the fault he found, he said, which covenant they break, even though I was a, a husband to them. You remember reading that in Jeremiah 31? In other words, when they break it, you can't blame it on me. Even when you're in your unregenerate state, you can't blame your disobedience on God. He's still caring for you and helping you and, and doing all that can be done to win your heart. And he said, though I was a father, they break my covenant. So he found fault with them. When I will, I'm in the middle of verse 8. <clears throat> it doesn't make any sense to start in the middle of verse 8, so I'm going to start over. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, which now that doesn't bother you, because you remember, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And was that a brand new idea of Paul's, or is that a very ancient idea? Ancient idea. Paul even said this in Romans 4, he said the reason that God gave circumcision, I'm paraphrasing Romans 4, verses 11 through 13, the reason that God gave circumcision as a symbol of the covenant was because circumcision extended not only to Abraham's genetic children. It wasn't just Isaac and Ishmael. It was all his hired hands. It was all of his servants, the men's servants. It was everyone under his teaching. <clears throat> so that... 
circumcision showed as a symbol that it was those who followed the faith of Abraham that were part of the covenant blessing. Not his descendants, but those that follow his faith. It could be his descendants if they follow his faith. It could be those who aren't his descendants if they follow his faith. But who is it? It's those who follow his faith. So then, he that is of faith is, is the child of Abraham. This is like a, an idea over and over again in the New Testament and in the Old. Verse 9. This new covenant, I'm adding, it says, is not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant. So we read about that in Jeremiah 5. That was the day he had just led them out. And did he anticipate they would not continue? He did. He said that they don't have a heart in them. Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would continue. Because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. I will write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God, and they will be to me a people. They will not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Someone asked during the break, <clears throat> How do you harmonize sins and iniquities I will remember no more with the Adventist doctrine of the investigative judgment, which says there is a memory made of sins again once every year, which, of course, is the next chapter here, right? But the idea is that when God says that we're not going to teach every man his brother and neighbor anymore because all are going to know him, is that a promise fulfilled right now, or is that later? Isn't it later that everyone's going to know him? then when we read the promise coming right after that that says their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more, should we assume that that is what is fulfilled right now? We would have to look in the Bible to see when that's fulfilled. And does the Bible give us an idea about when sins are blotted out? Why, in Acts chapter 3, it's very plain that God wants to give us repentance, that your sins might be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Depending on what version you look at, it could be so that in the time of the refreshing, your sins are blotted out, or when your sins are blotted out, the refreshing comes. But you know, what's very clear in every version is that they come at the same time. Does that make sense to anyone what I was just trying to say? That the sins are blotted out at the same time as the time of the latter rain. That's what's very clear in Acts chapter 3. So the new covenant says what's going to happen. Acts 3 tells us when part of it's going to happen and we can see it. Oh, if you really understand the Old and New Covenants, you've been inoculated against a type of fever that has, like, killed many pastors. Um, do you understand the Old and New Covenant? The Old Covenant was a little promise that was short-lived. They didn't continue in it. Isn't that what we just read here in Hebrews 8? It was short-lived because they couldn't, they couldn't manage it because they didn't have a new... I know I'm saying this like 50 times, but I'm just trying to get it really in there, right, so that we just never forget it. Because at some point, we're going to be studying with someone 
And they're going to show us verses in 2 Corinthians 3 that we haven't read in eight years. And we're suddenly going to wonder if we're in the right church. Have any of you ever had experience yet in your, in your dealing with, like, I think that when you're not actively sharing the truth with people, you can get an over-cheery idea of how easy it is uh, to manage it. That there are some passages that if you read them with certain presuppositions, they really strike you as hard. Let's look at that one. Look at 2 Corinthians 3. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 3. And if we wanted to make it really hard, we could just start in verse 3. For as much... 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone. Whenever you see tables of stone, you know what it's talking about, right? There's only one, or there's two of them, but they're the same thing. There's only one set of tables of stone in the Bible, and those are the... And so here in verse 3, you have a contrast. The Spirit of God writes in your heart, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. It says in verse 4, And such trust we have through Christ to Godward, which truly, in modern English, no one really understands that anyway. Verse 4, 5 I mean. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Verse 6, Who also has made us able ministers of the New Testament. But if you have another version, it might say New Covenant. Because in Greek, it's the same word for testament and covenant anywhere you go, right? In the New Testament. And uh, when it says the New Testament or New Covenant in verse 6, it says, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter does what? Now the letter, where did we read that before? That was written in the tables of stone. In the Spirit, that's written in the tables of the heart. So the Ten Commandments, they kill, but the Spirit, it gives... Life. Verse 7, But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, what was the name of the Ten Commandments right there in verse 7? I'm asking you very leading questions, and you're just being so easy to lead, it's really something. Um. <clears throat> It says the ministration of death. That's not a very nice name for, for, for the Decalogue. But it does say it was glorious. And then it says in the end of verse 7, which glory was to be what? Done away. Well, that's the glory of the ministration of death, which is the... Do you see this passage might complicate things for you at some point? And uh, maybe we just need to back up because those questions I asked you weren't fair. The Ten Commandments are not a ministration. The Ten Commandments are a law. The ministration was the ministration of Moses. The ministration of Moses was glorious. The ministration of Moses was going to be done away. 
the administration of Moses was so glorious that he put a veil over his face so you couldn't see st to steadfastly to the end of the thing. But the veil is taken away in Christ so you can really understand the ministration of Moses. But the contrast is between the ministration of Moses and the ministration of Jesus. And the difference is in the ministration of Moses in the Old Testament, he gave the Ten Commandments and the people said we will keep them, but they didn't have a proper heart. But in the ministration of Jesus through Paul, there's something being written. And where is it being written? Well, what is being written in the heart? We found that in a lot of other passages. It is the law of God. The ministration of the Spirit is praying the law in the heart. So certainly what's being done away with here isn't the Ten Commandments, but it's the ministration of Moses that is as an illustration of the covenant. I'm just trying to help you work through it. It'll take some more time for you to get through it probably in your own. But if we aren't sharing, we can really get... Like there are, this isn't the only passage like this that can be a little troublesome. What's really tempting to me, I've so enjoyed spending time with Chad Cruiser. Do you, how many of you know Chad Cruiser? Like, you ought to get to know him if you have a chance to get to know him. He's here with his wife, Fadia. Uh, Chad, when he and I were doing Bible work together for most of the month of November, uh, he would give me quite often these little helpful reminders that even though I might know the answers to all of these difficult texts, it wouldn't be a good idea to go over all the difficult texts with the people until they get the easy-to-understand text quite firmly settled in their head. Because otherwise, they could... You know how the devil works with you. If you get one text that you could understand it either way, and then you really don't want to go that way, that helps you know which way to understand it. Does that make sense to any of you what I'm saying? So that God is very kind to us in our infancy. I'll tell you about his kindness to me. Have you ever seen Wagner's book, The Lord, Our Righteousness? Or maybe it's called Christ, Our Righteousness. Christ, Our Righteousness. I read that book when I was 17. It was such a good book. It helped me so much. I began to recommend it. I bought copies and distributed them. I've still distributed copies since then. It wasn't just at that point. But when I was about 19, someone told me that that book has anti-Trinitarian sentiments in it. I said, no, it doesn't. I read that book. He got out his copy, he turned to page 17, and he showed it to me. I didn't, that's the real page number, 17 to 19. That's where it is in the book. It was like I was looking at something I'd never seen before. It was like I had never seen it. But I had read the book and enjoyed the book, and I didn't read it like superficially. I was really thinking through and praying through and, and digging into the thing. But you know, somehow it just didn't register I think it's that way with lots of people in the Bible. That God just spares them from some things. And uh, we ought to be more encouraged in going and doing the work we have to do. God will cooperate with us. So, can you tell I'm inclined to give Bible studies when I'm supposed to teach history? <clears throat> I, I can. But uh, 
1888, when we came up to our meeting, and Jones and Wagner were the men that God had chosen to bring the message to us as a people. Uh, Jones and Wagner were not faultless people. But when I say they weren't faultless, I'm not faulting them. It was only a few years before that that they had both made a blunder in regard to a man named E.P. Daniels who had been a revivalist. I'm not going to preach about him. I have a whole lecture and audio verse about that experience. But E.P. Daniels had been a preacher who was gifted at preaching, but his own personal life was faulty, but God used him anyway in a powerful way in preaching. And then Jones and Wagner, being young men in California where Daniels was, because they knew how faulty his life was, they thought that probably it wasn't the Spirit of God that was moving the people. Because they thought a man with that kind of faultiness, the Spirit of God wouldn't use him. Can you follow that kind of logic? But it wasn't right. God routinely uses faulty people. He never authorized us to look to the, to the people. He never authorized us to trust in man. Cursed is the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm. If you do that, your heart doesn't stay steadfast with the Lord. So it's in God's order to use weak men to give the message. If you're giving the message, that could help you. It's in God's order to use weak men to give the message. And it wouldn't be sensible if the, for you to believe the devil if he whispers in your ear that the reason God uses you is because you're stronger than average. Because you have, you have it together or because you're bright or studious or spiritual. If the devil tells you that's why God is using you, I hope that you won't fall for it. God uses weak people because in sharing the message, the message helps us. It's the sharing of the message that gives us a fair, a fighting chance. I have to resist that. So Jones and Wagner, when they preached the message, it wouldn't be right to say that the leaders of our denomination who were at the general conference meeting in that year, that was in Minneapolis, and if you're new to the idea of 1888, when you hear people talk about Minneapolis with some nostalgia or like it's a, an event in the past, they almost always mean this general conference meeting. When they say at Minneapolis, they mean 1888. And if you read a lot of Ellen White's writings, that will help you read her because she does the same thing. When she talks about at Minneapolis or since Minneapolis or from Minneapolis, Quite generally, she's referring to what happened at that general conference. Have you ever seen her talk that way in the writings? Uh, she's referring to that experience. In that experience, the, the men who were listening to the message from heaven, going through weak individuals, they felt like we already know it. Don't you already know the gospel? They felt like we've heard this before. 
And if there's anything I've tried to share around the planet during the last 20 years of my life, it has been this idea that truth only affects us when it has our attention. That we had been, as a people, before 1888, we had been preachers of the law for so long that we were very skillful at preaching the law. And when you become very skillful at preaching the law, well, did you notice this morning when we were even reading about the covenants that Jesus wasn't named in person in the Old Testament, that we had to sort of pull him out and identify him where we came across references to him and figure that, that you could, in fact, preach a lot about truth without talking about Jesus much at all. You could teach Daniel 2, and if you wanted to, you could really expand on that stone and talk a lot about Jesus. Or you could barely mention the stone and preach Daniel 2, and people think they didn't hear anything about Jesus. In Daniel 7, when you preach it, you could really expand on the ten horns and the little horn and the three uprooted horns, and you could preach that message very thoroughly and almost never mention Jesus. But if you wanted to talk about the judgment and Jesus being brought near before and receiving the kingdom, you could talk a lot about Jesus. What I'm, what I'm trying to illustrate for you is that in our preaching, there is a preaching that matches us and a preaching that's difficult for us. The preaching that matches us is the theoretical preaching. It's the preaching that tells people about the facts. And the theoretical preaching, it matches us because the people almost have to believe it. But then that part of the preaching where we talk about our Savior Jesus feels awkward. Why? Like, have you noticed that many preachers, like I'm one, it's easy for me to preach, but it's awkward to make an appeal? Can anyone relate to me, it, to me in that regard? Can anyone relate to that? The theory is easy. And for our pioneers before 1888, we had become skillful at teaching Adventism as a system that included lots of little references to Jesus, but really wasn't thoroughly immersed or imbued with Jesus. Paul in the New Testament has a hundred chapters. I'm not even rounding. I think it's exactly that, but I just counted yesterday and I might have been off by one. <clears throat> but there are a hundred chapters by him in the New Testament. He mentions Jesus directly, not counting references to him, for example, which are often references to him, uh, more than 300 times in those 100 chapters. And, and you realize that a lot of times he has sentences that are like four verses long. So even if Jesus is, only, is the subject of the sentence, he might only be mentioned one in the, once in the four verses. What I'm trying to say is that 
Paul had a message that was all about Jesus. And when Jones and Wagner were teaching after 1888, when we have a more thorough development of their teaching, they had a lot to say about him. Jones would take the Bible and give a study out of Paul's writings about the righteousness of Jesus and then about Jesus as the creator. Is Jesus as the creator relevant to the gospel experience? So it can be preached that way or not that way. It could be preached as the antidote to evolution. Or it could be preached as the antidote to sin. The second idea is Christ our righteousness. It's looking for Jesus in the Bible in a way that matches the needs of the soul. And when you look for the Bible that way, when you look through the Bible that way, you find just what you're looking for. I mean, this was William Miller's experience. When he, he described his own conversion, is that suddenly, as he began to imagine the kind of Savior he needed, and he began to put all the qualities to the very kind of being he wished existed, and when he thought of the very perfect solution for all his problems, then it just struck him that that is what the Bible teaches about Jesus. So if you appreciate that message about Jesus, you can love what Jones and Wagner have to share. But if you love to argue, you can get a little frustrated that they're taking so long to get to the meaty stuff. The meaty stuff. When Paul talked about different doctrines, he talked about a whole church, namely Corinth, that wasn't ready for strong meat. Do you remember reading that? And, that was, and, he, and they wrote to the Hebrews and said they weren't ready either. Have you read that? But he said, let us go on. But uh, to Corinth, he said, you're not ready because you're arguing still with each other. And because there's debates and divisions among you, that proves that you're carnal, that you're like men. And uh, let me just ask you about Adventism today. Have we got past that? Not, right? And so what part of the gospel might we need? The milk or the meat? Like, I do ask leading questions, and I do want you to think. And I don't think that when Paul in, was teaching this in 1 Corinthians and in Hebrews 6 and 5, that he ever meant that you should stop studying deep things. I don't think he ever intended that but he really wanted to prevent you from being spoiled by some vain philosophies. Look at Hebrews 13. I don't think I have a New Year's resolution, but I have a New Year's goal, and it's to memorize the book of Hebrews. I started it last week because... I figure if I memorize Hebrews 1 to 4, it'll be easier for me to explain Hebrews 4 to my Bible study contacts. That in going over and over and over and over again, that somehow things will start gelling and clicking. That's what happened to me for Romans and Galatians. 
and I really want to understand Hebrews 4 better than I do. But that's not where you're at right now, right? You're in Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, looking at verse 9. Do not be carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, and not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. So it's an awkward sentence in English, but it's not a difficult idea. Perhaps if you think in your mind, you can think of people who have not been profited in a spiritual way by the doctrinal meats that have interested them. I mean, they're really into some doctrinal idea, but they're still obnoxious or argumentative or callous or uh, strained. I'm, I'm thinking of people I know. Uh, and uh, these... Obviously, these meats have not profited them. If it hasn't profited them, it might not be any good for you. Do you see what Paul is saying here? And he says, but what is it that the heart really needs? Grace, milk. It needs that soft stuff. Revelation 17 is great if you have the gospel first. When you get, when you... I think I've said the same thing like 20 times, so let me just go on with the history. Unfortunately, when people are under conviction, they respond badly. Not all people, but some people. Uh, have you read Louis Torres' book about getting decisions? He has a nice little graph there about all the way that people respond to uh, conviction. There's a negative column and there's a positive column. The positive would be like sharing what you found with other people. The positive. Well, the negative column describes what happened in 1888. And when people are under conviction and they don't want to respond, you had there in some private rooms at nighttime when the speakers weren't around, some men were getting together and making fun of the way that A.T. Jones would preach because A.T. Jones didn't preach the same way that some other people preached. And if you want to make fun of a preacher, it doesn't even take a lot of wit to do it. It looks to me like God even uses preachers that are easy to make fun of. But he's asking you to love the truth. And when the people were making fun of the preacher, you know who was offended? It was the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit condescends to use a man to speak to you a man, at the very least he expects respectful silence. At the very least he expects that you will appreciate that he's offering you something. And men wounded their own souls by that experience. <clears throat> Why would God bring a message <clears throat> to the leaders of the people if the leaders of the people were not in the right mindset to accept the message? It's very difficult for leaders 
to be taught by the people they're leading. And if Jesus had taken the gospel, uh, if he had not been very careful with how he approached the priests, then what you find in Acts 3 to 5 would never have happened, where a great company of the priests believed. Do you remember this in Galatians 2? That when Paul is going to bring the gospel, and I'm talking too fast for some of you I know, but just try to catch the principle. But when Paul is going to bring the, the gospel for the Gentiles, the gospel to even Peter and James and John there in Jerusalem, he says he went privately to those that were of reputation. Because otherwise it would have been in vain. The people would not have responded properly if he hadn't, if he hadn't been careful like, it, like if God teaches you something your pastor needs to hear, do you understand how delicate that is? If you, if you argue with him in Sabbath school, don't think like you've done your duty. It requires so much tact and skill and it, a real effort. So God gave those leading people a chance first because the time was right. In 1888, there was a Sunday law before Congress. Like, already in 1888, in my state in Arkansas, Adventists were in prison because they were breaking Sunday laws. And in Tennessee, some were in chain gangs for the same reason. I don't know if that was, that might have been after 1880. I don't know what year that was. But by 1888 in Arkansas. What I'm trying to give you the idea is that the time was right, and even if the leaders didn't accept it, God was going to take it to the people. And between 1889 and for the years after, largely the message was taken to the individuals by the same messengers, by Jones and by Wagner and by Ellen White herself. They traveled widely. If you want to learn a lot more about 1888, I recommend that you begin reading the books by Jones and Wagner that are available. Uh, there's a pretty comprehensive book, The Return of the Latter Rain, Volume 1, by Duffield. Is it out of print or is it available? It's available. And uh, is it here at the conference somewhere? So you could get that book, it, quite thorough. But also, you could do what I did initially, other than reading Lessons on Faith and Christ Our Righteousness and the Glad Tidings. I began to read through Ellen White's 1888 materials herself. And there's so much, there, there are rich fields there. When I say rich, like my personal testimony, the, per, the title of this hour is The Repetition of 1888 in Your Personal Experience. In my personal experience, when I studied about Jesus being the author and finisher of my faith, that Hebrews 12 idea, Jesus is the author and the finisher of my faith, I, how can I illustrate this? It's like, putting, it's like putting enough fluid into a hydraulic system. It starts to work. It was like... The idea that I can lean on the Lord, I'm referring last night to the message, lean heavy, lean hard. I can lean on him to finish what he started in me. Do you know that allows me to have assurance without assurance of, in myself? 
by leaning on him to finish what, to claim his promise that he'll be the author and finisher, by leaning on his ability, by depending on him thoroughly, I get supported in the very way I need. That's what I found in the message. It's not the only thing I found, but it was one of the most precious things I found. Look in Galatians 1. I'll just show you something I think, this might even have been the very first chapter of Glad Tidings. It's been many years since I read the book, so I'm not sure if it was the first chapter. But uh, it's the kind of thing, once I read it, <clears throat> Glad Tidings is a book by Wagner about the book of Galatians, in case you wonder what I'm referring to. Every now and again, something like that happens, I guess just to keep us interested. Uh, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4. It says of Jesus, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Now this was the question that Jones, or excuse me, that Wagner asked. He said, if you go, I'm going to use my own illustration of his illustration. If I go to Walmart, which is where I do almost all my shopping, and I find one of their pricey items, say a rototiller, for example. Boys, I'm glad... Now some of you see the real benefit of having your Bible on a computer, don't you? Um, but you want to open that door just in case anyone here is afraid of the dark. If you were to go to Walmart and purchase, say, the rototiller, but uh, you're not going to pick that thing up. It's too heavy. So they're going to bring it to your car. Now I want you to imagine that they bring it to your car, and the man who brings it to you says... Are you sure you want it? And you say, yes, I paid for it. But are you really sure you want it? Yeah, I paid a lot of money for it. Uh, it the fact that I paid so much money is proof that I want it so much. Right? If I didn't want it so much, I wouldn't have paid so much for it. Then Wagner asked from this verse 4, he says, when you come to Jesus, is it kind to ask him if he is willing to accept you? Hasn't he already shown you how willing he is, how much he wants to take your sins? He, what did he give for them? What does it say in verse 4? What did he give for them? He gave himself for our sins. Then, then banish every thought that he... Can you imagine saying that my sins are too many? He wouldn't want them. My, he wouldn't take me. My sins are so much. What, what a thought. It, he gave himself... It doesn't just say for you. It says for your sins. That's how much he wanted to take them. Do you find some nourishment in that idea? Some source of courage? This is the idea in Christ our righteousness. The message about Christ and his righteousness, though you could spend a lot of time on all the details about how, how it's true, and you should spend the time, really, the reason God made it such a complex subject is so it takes so much time. Because by taking so much time, 
you would get to spend so much time thinking about it, and you would get all the courage you needed. So that the devil trying to discourage you just tries to keep you thoroughly distracted. When I read through the parable of the four types of soil, and I think about the United States of America where I live, which is similar to Australia and Canada and England and Germany and France and, I don't know, maybe even Brazil, I don't know. Uh, I really worry about that part about being choked with thorns. You remember the ground that choked things with thorns? That's from the cares of this, this life. It's from being overcharged with the troubles and the problems and the issues, the things we have to do. I can sense them choking at me. Do you sense them choking at you? I can sense that easily the busyness of trying to get ahead and stay ahead, I think even the passion to be upper middle class is going to destroy a lot of people. That easily could have made it, I mean easily isn't the wrong word, it would have required definitely self-denial, but certainly could have made it, is what I'm trying to say. They certainly could have made it if they had been content to be a couple steps lower in the economic chain and to give more of their time to the things that would nourish their soul. It really, the Bible and the Gospel, it's not that, it's not that the Bible is a book that is so demanding that it says, if you don't listen to me, I'm not going to help you. It's that we are so weak that if we don't get the help, we're not going to make it. seems like I just started and my time is up. <clears throat> Does it seem to you like I just started? But I think I have 10 more minutes in this one because there's nothing coming right after, right? Is there something at 11? And it's at least a 10-minute walk. So give me one minute to summarize what I've said. There's an 1888 experience of the church that we talk about in the period after lunch that needs to... It needs to be repeated differently. We need to get it right. But individually, maybe more important for you and I, is there's an 18 experience that we need to get right personally. We must not love arguing, but love Jesus. We must develop a relation to Christ our righteousness where that topic really thrills us where we view ourselves as so weak that when we find some source of courage, we feel thirsty for it, and we feel like it satisfies. We need to have such an idea of holiness that we feel lost without the help that we find in the gospel. If we cultivate that kind of thirst, the Bible has so many promises to him that is thirsty. But if we don't have any thirst, we could go on parched and dry until our strength is spent. We could be like the people who when the snake is on the pole, we don't look because frankly we think it's fanaticism to give so much attention to that thing on the stick. When in fact what's there is a picture that exactly meets the needs of a dying person. That there's a gospel here that hits us where we're hurting. And if we give it proper attention, it will do for us what it was intended to do. Amen. Let's kneel for a closing prayer.
Our Father in heaven, I claim a promise for myself and for those here that you would be not only the author, but the finisher of our faith. I ask for some in this convention, maybe even this room, that this week would be the time that you're the author of their faith. But I ask for all of us that you would find a way to finish what you've started. We ask for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at The Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.